All right. So good. So good. And, it, and we'll, we'll be talking today in our series, How We Roll, about our DNA as a church and what God is calling us to as individuals about we see beauty and diversity. And we'll get to that. But first, when we talk about how we roll, I just want to thank you as a church. I know you're a campus pastor, a campus host, or online. We just heard Peter um, talk about the one-year anniversary of the local goods center as we help get people out of poverty and serve hundreds and hundreds of people and hundreds and hundreds of you serving. And I just want to add to that. Thank you for your generosity of life and in Jesus's name, being the hands and feet of Jesus and lifting people up and and not only helping people in this life, but also introducing them to the love of Jesus and the possibility of knowing him forever. And you're doing an amazing job. And many of you serve. Many of you give uh, when you give to our church uh, that, you know, that enables us to do that. And uh, and so you're making an investment that is just so cool. And I'm, I'm proud of you. So uh, thank you for uh, how you roll as a church. And this series is called How We Roll, which is about our DNA as a church, our values, why we do all we do. And it's a really important series. So thank you for prioritizing it. I've asked all of you who are regular Chase Oakers to just make sure you watch or come each week. Because for us, it's a reminder of, of, oh yeah, that's why we do what we do. And keep us all on the same page to keep us aligned. And not only that, but to help us go deeper and deeper. Because we, we're not there yet on any of these things. We're in process on these things. And for those of you who are new, it's an opportunity to really understand what makes us us and and why we're kind of weird, you know, as a church, what makes us unique. And it's a real shortcut to be like, oh, that's what this church is about. That's what we're doing. And so we'll see that today because today we're talking about diversity. We see beauty in diversity, which replaces a former DNA statement. It's the same sentiment that hasn't changed, but we updated because it's been about 10 years. We updated our language. What this one used to be was uh, we're a salad, not a soup, which is cute, but not clear. Right. Nobody knew what that meant. And you had to explain it. And then people would say things like, well, I like soup. We're like, I know, but that's, you know, or some people would say like me, I hate salad and I do. I don't like salad. And I mean, I love people who love salads. My wife, Christy, she loves salads and I love her. And but, you know, I'm not going to voluntarily eat one. And and I just have this to ask for those of you who love salads. And again, I think you're great. I'm all for you. But have you ever eaten anything else? Because pretty much anything else is better. Like if you ever like ribs or, you know, hamburger. I mean, they're just, you know. Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich. I mean, there's, you know, wings. There's a lot of things better, just so you know. Just so you know that's out there. Um, like, this is my birthday this past week. And so we went out to a restaurant, you know, and, and of course it was my birthday. So I chose, I did not choose Salada um, or Salads to Go or whatever all those other ones are. Uh, we went to Fogo de whatever. I can't ever pronounce it. Fogo to lots of meat, I guess. And, and, uh, and it was awesome. Um, so anyway, all that to say... Instead of salad, not a soup, the new wording is we see beauty in diversity. And when I think about that, I always think of a picture of a mosaic, like a mosaic, like all these different shapes and sizes and colors that together form a beautiful reality, a beautiful unity, a beautiful picture Uh, like like this mosaic in Israel. This is in northern Israel from 2000 years ago. Um, And. 
we showed this in the Immerse series that we started at the beginning of the year. Immerse was a series that I'd filmed in Israel on the New Testament books of Luke and Acts. And one of the weeks I wanted to, I was, we were talking about a, a section where Jesus goes to a lot of parties, one of whom, one of which is at a, was at a Pharisee's house, a wealthy Pharisee's house, and this big dinner party. And there is a house, the ruins of a house of an ancient, like 2,000 year a Pharisee house, wealthy house in Sephoris. And so we said, man, it'd be great to be able to film there. And in the big meeting area, the big central area, they have this incredible mosaic that you see there. And we thought that, you know, that it's like this platform and you look over the mosaic because it's really valuable, this 2000 year old mosaic. And we were all, we'd set up on the platform. And because we were filming during COVID, uh, and they weren't, they, tourism was not allowed. We were there under a special visa. The curator, there was nobody there. So the curator came and said, hey, if you want to, instead of just being on the platform, if you want to go down and just teach from the mosaic itself, just stand on it, that's fine. And I was like, really? Like, I didn't know if I wanted to. I didn't want to be like, oh, my bad, you know, mess up a 2,000-year-old mosaic. But, you know, we did it. It was really cool. There, uh, yeah, there I am teaching from it, from that deal. And then let me just give you a little close up because it is really incredible work. Um, this is called, the, they call this particular part of it, show the next slide, the uh, Mona Lisa of Israel. And I mean, it's amazing, right? I mean, I can't imagine, I, I, I couldn't do all that with these little different pieces of glass or whatever it was. And, uh, and it's beautiful. And I think that's a great picture of what God, why well, I know it, of what God wants for his church. And that is a diverse unity of different shapes and sizes and colors, different ethnicities and genders and generations all forming together. Not just people who are just alike, but people who have, with all their differences, who normally would not be together, are together and unified in, in Jesus and and. And imagine trying to do a mosaic with all the pieces just the same. Same color, same size, same shape. That's what this is. Uh, you probably can't even tell these are different tiles. Because it, I can tell if you look close, but from where, you know, from a different angle, probably, I mean, from far away, it probably just looks like one big of sameness, right? And this is not God's dream for our lives or for our church. His dream is a, a beautiful mosaic of diverse Unity. And, you know, all of us, I think there, there's a part of us, all of us that wants that kind of diversity. We want to be part of something just that's not all sameness. We want to be part of something. And especially in a polarized world where everybody's in their own little tribes and they're own, in, you know, throwing rocks at each other and doing all that, that we really long for something better than that. And even for our own lives, I think we can get that, man, our life would be much better, much richer if it wasn't, if, if I didn't just hang with people who look like me, think like me, vote like me, uh, hang, you know, do what I just, you know, have the same interest in me. But to be, live a much more diverse life, there's a part of us that really does want that for us, for our families, for our kids. We know that life is richer and better when that happens. And that's the aspirational part of us. We value that. But then there's this other part of us. That just wants to be comfortable. And naturally, we won't go to the diverse unity thing. Naturally, we'll just do this. We'll just do sameness because it's comfortable. I mean, some of you are in high school, uh, but if not, you can remember high school. And remember high school, you know, lunch cafeteria, all the different tables of sames, 
You know, right? You, I, like I remember my high school cafeteria, I can see it. You know, the popular table over here, the athletic table over here, the smart nerds over there, the uh, like dope smokers and all that we called them over there. Um, there were even goths that started when I was in high school, you know, with all the black makeup and all that kind of stuff. And they were always funny to me because they were the nonconformists. And they look just like each other, like all of them. The whole table looked just exa- exactly alike because we're all conformist to something. And we like sameness and it's comfortable to do that. And naturally, there's just this magnet in our insecure human nature that will go that direction. But God wants something more for us. And what, what honors him and what he wants in his church is the beauty of diversity. And we're going to see why that's so important, not only collectively, but also individually for us. To, to have relationships and to live lives that resist sameness and move toward a diverse unity. And the kind of life that Jesus came to bring when he said, I, I've come that you may have life and live it to the full. Or what another passage says, life that is really life is not found in sameness, but in the beauty of diversity. But that's not ever going to naturally happen. But God will help us get there. So that's what we're going to talk about today is why this is such a big deal to God. And how we can achieve it in our church and also our own lives. And I have a, a Gen Z friend, um, who, Hayden, who uh, was talking with me. And he, and, he, and he said I should say it like this about God caring so much about diversity. And for his generation, I'm not Gen Z, so I don't know if this makes sense or not. He said it would. He just said, yeah, what you need to say is God, big diversity guy. They would know what that means. Okay. So I don't know. You, you could tell me if that means anything to you not in that generation. But God certainly is a big diversity guy. And we're going to see why. We're going to look at several different pictures of that. The first one is John 17. Jesus uh, praying on the, when he was still on this planet, praying. And it's the one time in the New Testament we know that Jesus prayed for you. When he prayed for those who had come to believe through the message of the apostles. And some of you are not believers. I know that you're figuring all that out or seeing if you want to be a believer or not, or just say, no, I'm not, whatever. But a lot of us here are believers. And so he, Jesus was praying for you and me in John 17. And this is what he prayed for. This is the one thing that he prayed for. I pray also for those who will believe in me through the apostles, their message, that all of them, that's us, may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. Now, this is how big of a deal this is. What Jesus is saying is. The way the world will know that Jesus is God who came here to make it possible for us to have a relationship with God, for our sins to be forgiven, for us to know him forever. That's a lot to take in. And the way a a skeptical world will come to believe what Jesus is saying is that we would have such surprising unity as God's family, as church, that a skeptical world will be like, wow, where else does that happen? There's got to be something to it. And, and, and what we're going to see and what you see develop in the New Testament with church is what that means is a diverse unity. A group of people who normally would not be together but are together and love one another and are doing life together of all different ethnicities and socioeconomics and races and 
genders and the whole that all of them together in a way that a watching world would be like, especially like think about now in a polarized world where they would be like, wow, that's what we need. I mean, where else does that happen? A remarkable unity that would convince a skeptical world. And Jesus said, yeah, that's the way it's going to happen. I mean, it doesn't get much more important than that. In fact, I want you to ask, right? And when I point to you, and I'll do this a couple times, I want you to say, um, how much more important can it get? Let's try it. It's kind of an awkward statement. But let's try it one more time. How much more important can it get? I'm glad you asked. Because it even gets more important. Um, and we're going to see that in Ephesians 2, the next picture. So in Ephesians 2 and 3, Paul's talking to the church. He's letting them know what's going on in the church and how big of a deal this is that we're talking about, this diverse unity. And in Ephesians 2, he talks about how that, that what we're talking about is not just secondary to the church. It's actually part of what Christians call the gospel. The gospel is a Greek word, just means good news. That encapsulates why Jesus came. Not only to reconcile man to himself, man to God, but also people to people. And he says that in Ephesians 2, that at the cross, he died to tear down the wall of enmity between Jews and Gentiles, the one race and all the other races. And that all, all the ethnicities would combine and form what he says, one new humanity in Christ, that that's part of the gospel. That's part of why Jesus came. That's part of why he died on the cross, was to make that possible. Let's try this again. How much more important can it get? I'm glad you asked, because in Ephesians 3, he's going to ratchet it up even bigger. The reason all that he does that, so in the context of what we just said, Ephesians 3, this is the, uh, the purpose of that, 3.10. God's intent was that now, through the church, this union of Jew and Gentile, this diverse unity, this new humanity, the manifold wisdom, if you're going to translate that even more literally, it's, I think it's a cool concept it's multicolored wisdom the multicolored wisdom of god should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in christ jesus our lord now that's a lot of weird words there so what does he mean rulers in the heavenly places he's showing his multicolored wisdom what's going on there well for those of you who are new to christianity um, we believe or we believe the bible teaches that there is a spiritual realm out there that we can't see that is actually impacting our world all the time. That in addition to humanity, there are spiritual beings called angels and demons, Satan, one of those demons. And that sometime way in the past, a third of the angels, now we call demons, led by Satan, rebelled against God and are actively at work today making our world terrible. And they're doing all that they can to oppose the goodness that God is injecting into our world. And there's this spiritual battle. One day that'll be over when Jesus comes back. But in the meantime, we're in this struggle. And so there's this cosmic question in the universe, in the spiritual realm, as people, as angels, the demons, have questioned God's right to rule. It, it, does he have the wisdom to rule? Is he the one that really should be God? Is he the one that really is? It, this, there's this cosmic question. And what Paul is saying is what God has done in the church is that's his way of saying to the angels or to the demons and Satan who question his right to rule and the angels too. You want to you want to see my wisdom? Here it is. Look at what happens in church. Now, that's kind of crazy. 
I'm a pastor. I know how goofy we can be in church. Like, and God says, church, so what is it? It's not just church. It's what we're talking about right now. The multicolored wisdom of God displayed in a diverse unity that could only happen in a supernatural way. The miracle of a diverse unity that would be like, wow, where else does that happen? Look at that. When I was in uh, junior high, uh, eighth grade, um, by the way, if you are a teacher, you're already a hero. If you're a junior high teacher, hero times two. Right. I, I'm, I'm really I mean, it's I, I used to be a, I used I started here at this church, Christy and I doing uh, junior high youth ministry and loved it. And some of you were in that group. And that's awesome. One of our campus pastors, Jeff Jones, the other Jeff Jones was in my small group uh, in seventh and eighth grade and uh, and it, it loved it. And junior high ministry, I always tell like junior high pastors when they come, I always try to pull them aside and say, look, you're, I think you're the most strategic person in our church. You're leading because it's this time where human beings are forming their own identity and it's awkward and it's so important, right? And so anyway, if you're a junior high teacher, I regard you as a hero. If you serve in junior high ministry, way to go. Um, but it is a unique calling, right? It, you have to have a unique constitution to survive that, that you know, right? You, you got to kind of be made for that. Well, in eighth grade, I had this teacher named Miss Tucker. She was not made for that. She did not have the constitution for it. And it's also unfortunate. I've got to be careful here because it's church. But Tucker's not the best name when you're a junior high teacher. It rhymes with stuff that's not good. Okay, so I won't tell you what they called her. I did not call her that. It's not father, but the other one. And, you know, you can put it together. Should I, should I say that? I won't say it. But anyway, you can, you can imagine, right? You already got it in your head. What, and it's terrible, right? But uh, and she was very uptight and very nervous. And that's not the kind of personality you probably need to be in that deal. And so, you know, it was interesting. So she was eighth grade teacher. She's my homeroom teacher and English teacher and homeroom teacher meant that that's where our lockers were right outside of her classroom. And part of her nervousness and uptightness is she was very agitated about me because I was the student council leader or whatever it was. And she felt like that was a really big deal and that I needed to be a example for the school and, you know, do everything just right because I'm the student council, whatever. And, and she talked to me about that a lot because my locker that was right outside of her classroom was probably the messiest locker in the school. And it was bad. I mean, like when I opened it, stuff would fall out and I'd have to, you know, get what I wanted and then just shove it all back in there and close it real quick before it all, you know, it was, it was bad. And she would tell me every day, you got to clean your locker this year, student council, whatever you should be right. And I, it wasn't good. This was passive aggressive. I just ignored it and it was kind of fun and I, it was bad. I'm not proud of it. Okay. Just, okay. So anyway, so we, we, that was going on and I decided one day, you know what? She's probably right. I mean, just, this is getting out of hand. I can't, I can't even find anything in there. I'm going to clean it out. So one afternoon I decided to clean it out, get it all organized. What I didn't know and what she didn't know is that that same day she called my mom to come the next morning to see the travesty of my locker. And just in God's timing, I, I guess it's his sense of humor. I don't know. Cause I didn't know she called my mom. She didn't know I cleaned out my locker uh, the afternoon before she came that morning. So my mom comes that morning and Miss, and Miss uh, Tucker uh, uh, <laughs> um, opens the locker with her eyes closed because she knows things are going to fall out and she just can't just so terrible. And she opens it and she says, see, because she told her how terrible it was. She said, see. And my mom looked at it and was like, well, it looks pretty good to me. Like, 
What's great? And then she looked at it and she said, well, no, it's not normally like this. And Right? It was a great afternoon for me. I love that. But here's, here's why I'm saying all that. Um, what God is saying is in this cosmic question, as well as Jesus, when he prayed that a skeptical world is when he says, hey, look, look at church. Look at that. Is it what he would want to point to? Like, because if, if what we what he points to is this, well, everybody, every, I mean, that's a country club. That's not anything unique. That's embarrassing. And what he wants to be able to do is point to, hey, look at church, this diverse unity of people who are who normally would never be together, but not only together, but love each other and united in Jesus and growing in this richness of that's supernatural because that doesn't naturally happen. Now, that's another picture. Let me go to another one. Just showing how difficult this is. And that is a picture of the early church. Eric talked about some of this history, which last week in his message on, uh, on another one of our statements about not being set in our ways. I so said, you can get more depth or more time on that if you watch last week's, if you missed it. I encourage you to do that. But when Jesus, so when the, you know Jesus' dream for the church, right? This diverse unity, not a monoculture, a multiculture, not multi, not monoethnic, but multi-ethnic, all that. But when Jesus starts the church, it starts, all he has to work with is one ethnicity. That's where the church starts in the, in the Jewish, like every Christian for the first 10 years of the church were, was, were Jewish Christians. And the mission was not to stay in that one race, but to reach the Gentiles, which is all the other races, to take the, the good news of Jesus to the world. But, you know, Eric talked last week about how that was a struggle because they didn't understand that. See, what they knew is in the Old Testament era, Israel was the one that God chose that particular race of people, that ethnicity God chose through whom the Messiah would come. But their job, they were chosen to be a light to the nations, a light to the Gentiles. It, they were there to help the other ethnicities know that there is a God who cares about them. They were to be a light to the nations. They got the chosen part, but they totally flubbed the light to the nations part. And so as they were the chosen ones, they looked down their nose at the nations rather than being a light to the nations over the centuries. And God even told him one time, like, look, I did. You think you're a big shot because I chose you. I chose you. I choose things that are not so great to do great things. You're not great. You're 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 like I could I could have chose greatness. That's not you. And but anyway, they didn't get that right. So and over the centuries, by the time Jesus came, they developed this idea, this theology, this way of looking at people is that they were that like the nations, the other races, the Gentiles were unclean. And would make have spiritual cooties. And if you interacted with them, they would ruin you. And therefore, to be holy and to be set apart meant to be separated from the Gentiles. So they would not, this was not Jesus. That's why Jesus, Jesus broke all those laws, all those rules that they had. It wasn't God's idea, it was their idea. But that, they weren't supposed to eat with Gentiles. They weren't supposed to go into the home of a Gentile. They weren't supposed to hang out with a Gentile. None of that. And so that's what Jesus had to work with. Because essentially it's racism. And, and, and Gentiles, by the way, also looked down on Jews. So there was racism going every direction. And God has to break that down. And that's a big part of the story of the book of Acts. So, like I said, it takes 10 years for the first Gentile, the first non-Jewish person, to become a Christian. 10 years. 
into the story of the New Testament church. And that has to happen with a lot of drama to talk him into doing this. So uh, God appeals, uh, appears to Peter, the leader of the church at the time, one of the, you know, Peter, one of the disciples, to, does this whole thing about what's clean and unclean and don't call unclean what God has called clean. And you think, you know, Gentiles are unclean. That's not good, stupid, stop it. In fact, there's this uh, group of Gentiles that I'm pulling into relationship with me because my heart is for the world, not just for you. And I want you to go and go to this city. They're already waiting. And God had also appeared to these people in dreams. And so he goes to this other city, Cornelius and his friends, these Gentile friends, and he uh, make travels this way. And Acts 10 is a monumental step in the life of the church. And he Because what he does is he crosses the threshold and walks into a Gentile house. (gasps) I mean, who cares, right? But for them, that was no, but you didn't do that. Nobody did that as a good set apart Jewish believer. And God told him to do it. So he does. But and he goes in there and there's this whole group of Gentiles that God's already appeared to and listen to his perspective. Verse 28, as he says to these Gentiles, he said to them, once he's in the house, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. He actually did. But I came without raising any objection. Now, imagine being one of those Gentiles hearing that. Because what he's saying is, you know what? You guys are disgusting. You're kind of gross. Spiritually, you know that the way we roll is we don't relate to people like you. We don't go in the homes of people like you. But God told me I'm not, you know, that I'm not supposed to call unclean clean. So I came. And aren't you lucky? It's kind of the way it came across, right? And they were gracious and they come to know Jesus in a dramatic way. And then uh, Peter goes back to the Jerusalem church and you would think they'd be excited. Here's what happens. The apostles, that's like the apostles, like the disciples, right? The apostles. And the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. You would think it'd be like, awesome, this is what God wants. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers, the Jewish believers, criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them? And Peter began and explained everything to them precisely as it had happened. That's what God had to work with. Now, they do kind of understand, okay, I guess God, okay, I guess we need to be open. And they, they're not quite there. They say, well, I guess God is pulling in even the Gentiles. The word even is not so great. But even the other rate, maybe, you know, even that. God is having to break that down. That's 10 years in the life of the church. A year 12, because of persecution, they scatter, they take the message of Jesus. And some have the audacity, I think it was probably an accident, to when they go to this place that Eric talked about last week, the church of Antioch in Syria, another country, Syria, what the second most significant city in the Roman Empire at the time. A lot of people think the most diverse culturally and ethnically city in the Roman Empire because of where it was and its unique history. And it's and, and they start telling people about Jesus, but it's a Gentile town. And so all these Gentiles start coming to Christ. And now you have this whole church, mostly of Gentiles, and it becomes this big thing and it's growing like crazy. And Eric talked last week about it. that made the Jewish church nervous and they send people and all this kind of stuff. 
But then at year 16, something amazing happens. Acts 13.1. Among the prophets and teachers of the church at Antioch of Syria. Now this is the leadership team. This is a diverse team for a diverse church. Where Barnabas, Simeon called the black man. Lucius from Cyrene. Manan, the childhood companion of King Herod Antipas and Saul. That was a, that was a super diverse leadership team. You have Barnabas and Saul, later will be named Paul, Barnabas and Paul, who are Jewish people, but not from Israel. So they grew up in Gentile regions as Jewish people. So they were multi-ethnic in mentality anyway, much more open to stuff. So you have Saul and Barnabas, but then the other ones are Gentiles. So Simeon, called the black man, likely from Africa, Lucius from Cyrene, which was North Africa, Manan, another Gentile, the childhood companion of King Herod Antipas. And either he was a childhood companion because he was wealthy from a wealthy family or he was from a slave family in the household of Herod Antipas. It could have gone either way. We don't know which. He was an extreme socioeconomic situation. Either way. I'm not sure. And, and then Saul. Bottom line, the first diverse church. The, the first church kind of church that Jesus prayed for, that God was trying to form to the manifold wisdom of God, multicolored wisdom of God, the first one of these. In the very next verse, it's no surprise. One day, as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit, who's God, said, Appoint Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I have called them. So after more fasting and prayer, the men laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. That's the first missionary journey. Taking Christianity public to the nations, to the world. Now that's 16 years into the story. And God waits 16 years. Like Jesus comes, dies on the cross for the sins of the world. Gives the mission to the church in Jerusalem. It takes 16 years, as urgent as God is to reach every human being that he loves, that is lost to him. He waits 16 years to go public with Christianity. To start spreading churches everywhere. Why does he wait 16 years? Because he didn't want to replicate this. This was not the DNA he wanted to replicate. Sameness. He wanted to replicate something much like, well, he wanted to replicate what Antioch was. The first multi-ethnic, multi-socioeconomic, so on. The first multi-church, not mono-church. And therefore, that's what he replicated. And you know what happened? That's became church. In, 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 the, in a Roman world that was very stratified and even more polarized than we are, even more segregated than we are in their social circles, the church was the first multi-ethnic and multi-socioeconomic and didn't matter if you were a citizen or not, slave or free, this race or that race, man or woman. What they, it was in Jesus, they were, they were united. The Roman world had never seen that before. And it's part of what won over a skeptical world and helped Christianity grow so rapidly. That's what Jesus prayed for in John 17. And that's what happened. And that's still God's prayer. That's still his desire. That's still his purpose. And we want to be part of that. We don't want to resist that. Naturally, we'll do this. It's not what we want. We see beauty in diversity. That our unity is beautiful when it reflects the diversity of our world. And therefore, we're committed to the hard work of bringing different people together for good. Demonstrating God's love in unexpected ways. That's not the easiest way to do church. 
The easiest way to do church is just get people who are just alike. And that's pretty easy. But God calls us to something much, much richer than that. So what does that mean for us? Well, as a church, it means we, we make decisions with this in mind. As we diversify our leadership team. And there's different ethnicities and different cultures. Not just American cultures. That is speaking into our leadership and the life of our church at our board and staff and all. And that's important to us. Because we believe it's important to God. And also, we want to see throughout the church just our, we're, we're in an increasingly diverse community. We want to reflect the diversity of our community. Um, the other day, we had Trunk or Treat just before Halloween, the Saturday before Halloween. And it was so, such a cool picture for me. Like, and, cause we got so far to go as a church, but it, w- it was an encouraging moment. So, uh, Christy and I and family went to Trunk or Treat. Here we are. In fact, Christy was a bunny rabbit. Uh, Christy, I didn't tell you I was showing your picture. I hope you're okay. She's here tonight. But, uh, and that's me as a carrot. Uh, Peter Park told everybody I was a hot dog. Uh, but, uh, that's, doesn't it, doesn't it kind of look like a carrot? Anyway, so you had the bunny and carrot, right? And, uh, but it was, it was so cool to see it because if you were there, it was just this incredibly diverse group of people all having fun together and celebrating together. Hundreds of diverse, just, it was, it was just like this little picture. It's like God up in heaven being like, that's what I'm talking about. Just this little moment in time. And that's what we want to continue. We've got a long way to go. Continue to cultivate as a church. But what does that mean for us as individuals? It means each of us doing what Peter did, and that is crossing new thresholds. To expand our relational circle. Because the church is just you and me. It's just us. It's people. And... And if, and if you think about your relational circle, if I think about my relational circle, is it kind of like this? Or is there richness and diversity to it? Because naturally, we'll kind of do this. We'll, we'll value the other, but we'll end up doing this on our own. But God will help us, and it takes intentionality, too, to say, no, I'm going to broaden that. And the cool thing is, in North Dallas, I mean, it, it's becoming so much more diverse. If, we're, if we choose to be intentional in our church and in our community, in our neighborhoods, at our school, at our workplace, God will help us do that as we reach out to people and, and make friends with people who aren't just like us, but, you know, who are different than us. You know, this, we're coming into the season of holidays, you know, Thanksgiving and then Christmas, which is such a great time. To take some steps this direction individually. Like Christmas. We do our Christmas series service. It's not just for those of us who are Chase Oakers to have an incredible Christmas experience. Now our Christmas services, our team works so hard. They are incredible experiences. I mean, they're great. But it's not for us, right? Our, one of our DNA statements that we're going to talk about later is we're not our party. This is not our party. This is, it's not just for us, but those who have yet to come. And so I, I hope you'll be thinking of Christmas, tw- December 23rd, December 24th, those, uh, those at, at all of our campuses. I hope you're thinking about, man, who am I going to invite? And invite people who look like you and who think like, that's fine. I mean, I hope you are. But also, man, can we expand that to think about people in our neighborhoods and all that who, it's just a great opportunity to say, hey, I'd love for you to come and do this, you know, come to a, to a Christmas. I think you'd really enjoy it. And people from other cultures, especially who kind of curious about what's all about anyway thanksgiving is a great example of that like another nobody else has thanksgiving like we do right and, and, and when people in your neighborhood at work or from other cultures it's such a kind and 
And for them, incredible thing to just say, hey, we'd love for you to celebrate with us. And, you know, you can. And, and, and I remember years ago through a friend, uh, Christy, through a friend, uh, it, it, was, it was my most memorable Thanksgiving. I don't really remember Thanksgivings very well, but I remember that one with our kids growing up. Um, is she invited uh, a bunch of, of uh, students, college students, graduate students from Japan to have to celebrate Thanksgiving meal with us. And, and I'm sure if I asked my kids, that would be the one that they would remember. And, uh, and man, why not? Why not do that and, and cross new thresholds? And, and when we have opportunities like Unity Table, and if you don't know what that is, you'll hear about it some, at some point. We do those again as we just get different ethnicities, uh, different races together just to share their story of what it's like to be us and, and our community. Um, take advantage of those and be open. It's not so much about, it's about open to learning and listening. And, that, and it builds a richer life. And that's what we're trying to do as a church. Because it's God's church. He's the Lord of the church, Jesus is. And John 17, we want to be the church of his dreams, not the church of his nightmare. And, and therefore, it's, it's worth doing that. And, and it means all of us taking steps to, to, to uh, make our own relational circles also increasingly diverse. And we're going we're gonna to pray about that in just a moment. But I also, um, we're going to have a little worship experience after. And some of you are freaking out because you're like, what do you mean we're doing? What are you making me do? And don't worry about it. If, if you don't participate, nobody will ever know. This is, you're in complete control. Okay, you're fine. If you're worried about, I'm not making you do anything that weird. Nobody even know if you're doing it. But I encourage you to do it. Because we're going to sing a song that, that will, is written out of Revelation 7, which is the picture that I'll end with, just showing what a big deal this is. It is a picture of heaven in the future. Where John, uh, in Revelation, is transported into the future by God to see the heavenly scene around the throne of God. In Revelation 7, 9, he says this, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. Interesting, in heaven, every tongue, every tribe, every nation... It was obvious this is a diverse group of people. And what that tells me is that you and I will retain our diversity for all eternity. Our bodies that will be resurrected and remade. We're not all going to be the same. We're not just all going to be the same look or the same color or the same, you know. And I mean, if it were up to me, I might make us all crimson and, and change Amen to roll tide. But God probably is not going to do that. But what God will do is he will retain the diversity of like, like the, there's beauty and diversity. And for all eternity, it'll be reflected. All, all the beauty of a multi-ethnic, multi-colored, multi-everything world for all eternity. What a picture around the throne of God unified. And the church is supposed to be a preview of that coming attraction. That's what we're supposed to be. Increasingly look like that. And so after we pray, the worship teams are going to, at your campus, are going to lead us in a song from Revelation 7. And at some point in that time, what I want you to do is just close your eyes and picture that scene as you're singing around the throne. The beautiful diversity, every tongue, every tribe, every nation, all unified around the throne, all worshiping God. And as you do, just say, God, help us become what you want us to become. Help my relational circle become what you want it to become. 
Um, I'm going to ask, uh, in, instead of me praying, I'm going to ask a friend uh, here, Harold, to come. He's our keyboard player and just all around awesome person at our legacy campus. And, uh, and I love the way you pray. Not to put pressure on you. But um, I've asked him to pray for us and for our church with everything that we've talked about in mind. And then we will, uh, the worship team will lead us. Amen. If, could we stand to honor God in his presence as we pray? And let's give Pastor Jeff a round of applause for that great message. As we bow in his presence, Father God in heaven, we thank you for your love for us, Lord God, that you not only said that you love us, the agape love, Lord, the love that is unconditional, Lord, but you did something about it. You gave us your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. And we thank you that if those that are here, some of them are not saved today, Lord God, they can call on the name of the Lord and they will be saved. We thank you, Lord God, for this church. Lord, I have so many stories that I can share about diversity and being in churches, Lord. But this is a place where I believe that the spirit of the God, Lord, dwells. And Lord God. I just thank you for Pastor Jeff and the the staff, the ministry, and all the different people that are here, that they are accepting of different ages, different colors, different creeds, Lord God, and you do not discriminate. I just pray, Lord God, in the name of Jesus, that you will continue to teach us to worship in spirit and truth, for we'll be ever grateful in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.